Hello, and welcome to another episode of Such a Nightmare, Conversations About Horror. My name is Katherine Troyer, and joining me as always is Anthony Tresca. Hello! Happy Merry Seasonal Holiday greetings to all of you out there. We are so excited and very, very thankful to have you join us for our very special holiday episode, 2015's Krampus. Exciting times. Mm Mm-hmm. I believe you. (laughs) Yeah. podcast devoted to thoughtful discussions about that fine line between the horrific and just simply the horrible. Each episode looks at a specific horror text that is, for better or worse, giving us nightmares. I am a a sucker for a good holiday horror film, and it doesn't even actually honestly have to be, like, good. I just, I like holiday horror. I, I too, am a big fan of, like, themed horror as a whole. So just, like, anything that really commits to one specific like aesthetic or yes. gimmick throughout I'm really there for it. Like one of the worst movies I've seen but it delights me is Thanks Killing. Mm. Because it's just like yes, I didn't know I needed a Thanksgiving this turkey's going to pop out of some people um after saying lines like you've been stuffed. Like I didn't know I needed that, right? Like so I just right. love holiday horror and Krampus very much fulfills all those things. It's a it's a delightful example of. I don't quite remember anything jumping out and saying you've no, gotten stuff. Fortunately, in the, in not. Krampus, but, but there's still so many great like holiday moments where you're like ah, in between watching Christmas Vacation, I'm gonna watch this other delightful exploration of how families are horrible. And this does feel a lot like Christmas Vacation. It just is like what would happen if Krampus showed up. On that Christmas vacation. (laughs) And, and, like, I find that rather delightful. Before we get too overwhelmed talking about the Krampus and all of the holiday season's greetings that he brings, let's begin with a little bit of framework. Yes. So this year's holiday present is some critical theory on monsters. That is our gift to you. You don't have to pay anything for that. Exactly. And you get to virtually unwrap it and everything. Mm-hmm. Um, so mm-hmm. this is coming from Jeffrey Jerome Cohen, who if ever there is somebody that the moment you mention monsters, people begin to cite as like the person who's kind of defined monsters for us. It's Jeffrey Jerome Cohen. So this is coming from Monster Theory uh, Reading Culture, which is an edited collection of a whole bunch of different um really great essays, but his is titled Monster Culture, Seven Theses. He says there are sort of like these seven things that he's going to say that all monsters sort of share. Mm -hmm. So what I thought I would do is just kind of go through the the like bolded, here's what the thesis is, here's his like argument that he's proposing a monster is regardless of culture, regardless of text, because I think that it'll become kind of apparent that Krampus meets all of these definitions really nicely. So the first one is that the monster's body is a cultural body. And by that, you know, it means that the way that the actual monster's body is shaped is dictated in part by the culture that is producing it. And that uh, pretty specifically applies to Krampus. Is it, Krampus is a cultural figure descending from a lot of history, which I will get into in just a second. Exactly. So then the second one, and again, this happens in the film, the monster always escapes. 
And it's interesting that we end, like, in that final moment of the film in his, like, workshop. Mm-hmm. But we still feel like he's escaped and he's just going to go on his merry way and now destroy someone else's life because they made an ill-advised wish. The third one is The Monsters, The Harbinger of Category Crisis. And what uh, Cohen means by that is that the monster escapes in part because it refuses easy categorization. Is Krampus a god or a monster, as we will discuss later? Mm -hmm. Is he a human or more of a, like, humanoid, or is he more animalistic, right, in form? Or, well, the answer is, again, kind of a, a little bit in between both. The answer is yes. Yeah, pretty much. The next one is that the monster dwells at the gates of difference. Um, so the monster is different from us, and it's in our presence to remind us that it stands out as this other. The next one is that the monster polices the borders of the possible. So I always think about this one about, like, the, you know, like, here there be monsters sort of note. Mm-hmm. Um, like, this is, like, the line at which you go past, and you have to say, okay, well, I'm no longer in my safe space. And again, think of the number of times that with the, the concept of a border is present in the and then the destruction of said border. Exactly, again and again and again. The next one is that fear of the monster is really a kind of desire, and it's a little bit more easy like in a vampire film, right? Because you're like, oh, his long flowing locks or sparkly skin is so attractive. I'm sure someone on the internet has done that with Krampus. Ew, that's so gross. Let me check. So gross. What do I look up to find this? I don't know, but just know that it's going to always be in your search. Rule 34. Oh, yep. Yep, there is. What yeah, is yeah. Rule 34? Rule 34 is if it exists, there's porn of it. Oh my gosh. Okay. Um. So gross. Okay. So we don't normally, like, usually we would edit out that, but we thought that that traumatizing trip down Rule 34 lane was something that you all should have to experience and not just me. Yeah, um, so, and if you yeah. are interested in um, Rule 34 version of Krampus, uh... It does exist, dear you viewers. Can, you can look it up on the internet. Yes. So, <laughs> uh, um, <laughs> beyond though, just like the like physical or sexual desire, it's also a desire for wanting things, right? And again, it's like we would like order. We would like Christmas to be the way we want it to be. Uh, we would like people at Christmas time who are obnoxious to get their comeuppances. And so it's desire in a lot of respects. And then the last one is, and I, I like that he ends with this, the monster stands at the threshold of becoming, and he says, monsters are our children. They can be pushed to the farthest margins of geography and discourse, hidden away at the edges of the world and in the forbidden recesses of our mind, but they always return. And when they come back, they bring not just a fuller knowledge of our place in history and the history of knowing our place, but they bear self-knowledge, human knowledge, and a discourse all the more sacred as it arises from the outside. And then he said, they ultimately ask us why we have created them. So I just think that this is a lovely framework because I think the film kind of like, it's almost like in check and our monster is this and our monster mm-hmm. does this. Mm-hmm. In part because Krampus is a real monster. He's grounded indeed. in folklore and culture. Yes, he is. That's very true. Uh, and I will get into that right now. So Yay. the Krampus is a 2015 film written and directed by Michael Dowdery. He is written... Krampus is a 2015 film written and directed by Michael Dotery. Uh, He has written scripts for 2003's X2, uh, the X-Men movie Superman Returns, Trick or Treat. Which is one of my favorites. I'm a big fan of that film. It's a good one. And then he directed and co-wrote Godzilla King of Monsters. It's his most recent one. Krampus stars Adam Scott, Tony Collette... 
who we have already praised and will happily yes, praise again. She we will is just happily do that. doing such a good job in her horror films. This was lately. before Hereditary. It was. Yeah. And I feel like she's kind of found that niche of like the type A parent who loves in a really abrasive sort of fashion. Yeah. Because she def- you definitely like see strands of the Krampus performance carried over into her hereditary yeah, performance you do. for sure. Um, film also stars David Keckner, beloved character actor, and uh, Alison Tolmo. So who um, also was pretty fantastic. Also very good. Like yes. this is a good cast. They've it just is a good cast, and I think best. I think that makes a difference. There are lots of bad films that have great casts, and a lot of good films that don't really have anyone recognizable. Um, but I just think that when you can have such a great ensemble, you're going to set yourself up for success. Yeah. And I think that that's what this film does. It's got, if nothing else, you can latch on to the cast and their performances and exactly. just go along with them for a good, fun Christmas romp. And each of them really has a moment to shine as a mm-hmm. character um, and as an actor. And I think that's also really nice because a lot of times you just have, you know, this one character that's only going to have a second. But, like, every character, if you were to divide up the minutes, it'd come out pretty equal that every moment has their, like sort of redeeming moment, the moment they're like, my goodness, you're terrible. Mm-hmm. Um, and just, like, also their comedic moments. And this is, like, particularly good in a horror film where you have to care about the characters dying. Exactly. Because if these are just, like, run-of-the-mill, nothing characters who you don't know, it yeah. doesn't matter. I think that also does help that they're kind of, like, recognizable because you're like, oh, no, Adam Scott from Parks and Rec is yes. gone. Exactly. Now he's going to sacrifice himself. Exactly. Not Ben. I know. And <laughs> I think I think that really does help. Um, I think it can hurt sometimes because, you're like, you know, I think about the remake of Amityville Horror mm-hmm. and, like, how Ryan Reynolds is in it. And you're like, hmm, is this scary because it's Ryan Reynolds? Um and he's so funny, and, and you know, but so like I can be detracting, but in this case, it just sets everything up for glory. Mm-hmm. So, Dotery talked about that the reason that he really wanted to do this was because the Christmas that many people often think of with the candy canes, the little drummer boys, and the nativity scenes is not the Christmas that he was interested in. And as he points out in an interview with Bloody Disgusting, that version of Christmas that we're celebrating in malls, that's night not Christmas. Uh, The Christmas that he's actually referring to is the real Christmas that finds its roots in paganism. Uh, Long ago, before Christmas trees were the spots for Santa, the evergreen trees were used as repellent against ghosts and illnesses. Uh, He goes on to talk about how Christmas used to be very spooky, mystical pagan holiday. It was debaucherous. People stuffed themselves and got drunk. They believed in dark winter spirits and ghosts and Christmas witches. So there's a whole side of the holiday which has not been explored or embraced, and I think it needs to be brought back to complete Christmas. And what's interesting is that so you're talking, of course, about something that in pagan culture would have been quite some time ago in its, like, really richest form, but there are lingering elements that have survived the sanitization mm-hmm. of Christmas. And one of the things that I think we should be bringing back, by the way, as a culture, um, is the telling of ghost stories, right? I think we often forget that A Christmas Carol is first and foremost a ghost story. And I think it's significant that A Christmas Carol does make at least a brief appearance in this yes, film. Yes, I think it was, like, a very clear nod mm-hmm. and tip of the hat. But also, if you think about some of the, like, songs about Santa... They're terrifying, right? Like, he sees you when you're sleeping. 
He knows when you've been good or bad. He's been judging you all year. Have you been found wanting? Is like, he a jolly figure who is bringing you presents, or is he a child predator who is stalking your children? I mean, there is some <coughs> some question of that, and I think that, like, again, if you look at sort of the way that we set up this culture, is like, this is your time to be perfect or not. We have kept some of that, like, darkness. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just that we often forget it in light of, you know, the shiny wrapping. Exactly. So, uh, Dojeri talks about how he came across this Krampus myth. Uh, he says in an interview with the Dean of Geek, it was about 10 years ago. This was the ancient time of the internet before social media really popped up. And friends started forwarding me the Krampus greeting card that had started floating around online. It was just sort of love at first sight. I'd always wanted to do a scary Christmas movie. I used to draw on my own creepy greeting cards and send them out to friends and family, and those would feature the carnivorous snowman and Santa Claus falling into some mishaps and things like that. So I knew back then that there was definitely a movie to be made about the character, but it wasn't about uh, until about 2011 when I started working with my two co-writers, Todd Casey and Zach Shields, and we started crafting what the story would actually be. So, I mean, it's been a bit of a long time yeah. in, in the making, and... But I think it paid off because it, it meant that it was a lot more cohesive than I think it would have been. It's not perfect, but no. it's a lot more cohesive than it would have been if he had just, you know, pushed it out straight off. Yeah, I, I think that's probably true. And, I mean, there's a lot of, like, really interesting craft elements that gone, have gone into it. In particular, the one that, that I am the biggest fan of is the visual and practical effects yes. in this film. Made by Weta Workshops, which is a special effects and prop company from New Zealand. And they are amazing. Yes, and they are pretty well known. They've worked on a lot of really interesting stuff. I've just chosen some of their more well-known work. Uh, they are really well-known for their work on Lord of the Rings, obviously, New Zealand company. Uh, they've also done iRobot, Hellboy, The Chronicles of Narnia, District 9, Avatar, Mad Max Fury Road, Thor Ragnarok, and Blade Runner 2049, just to name a few. So one of the things we haven't had a chance to really talk about, because there's just so few podcasts and so many great films... Um, and terrible films to talk about. Mm-hmm. So we haven't really talked about any Kiwi splatter, so New Zealand horror. Yes. We will get there because we have some that we have to talk about. Obviously, but that's, yes. that's how I learned about this company, and I just, is through some of those, like, really not big hits, but fantastic films. And I think that every horror film should be required to have practical effects. Mm-hmm. Um, they can have CGI too, but, like, that's one of the reasons this film is so good is because it doesn't feel... Like, they blew their budget on CGI, or that they just were like, oh, well, we don't have a budget. They yeah. did it right. And uh, Dojeri actually talks about how uh, he used these puppets, uh, that he built the puppets, and he was very similar to what Ripley Scott did with Alien. And in the, in the chest burst, uh, se- burster scene in Alien, he didn't tell the cast what to expect. He said, something's about to happen, you've read the script, you know what that something will be here, but he didn't show them ahead of time. The same thing happened here. And you can tell in Alien, right? Like, when that blood splatters their faces and they're, like, really honestly, like, shocked. Like, you really, it's hard to, to fake that. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're saying that they... They did, did the same thing. They excellent. did not show the puppets or any of these things to the cast. Uh, and they actually... <laughs> this is really interesting. They had own special trailers for these puppet figures oh my gosh. so that the actors couldn't see them and they couldn't just wow. walk into set. And the actors were not allowed to come onto set until all of the puppet things had been set up so as not to ruin the surprise. That's fantastic. 
perhaps scarring for those children. Um, I don't know if they'll like they'll be forever haunted, but I like that. I'm gonna oh. start doing that. <laughs> I don't know how, but I'm gonna start doing it. Just every every class you teach, yeah. just have like weird yeah. puppet animatronics yeah, that, that you can't see until the start of class. Yeah, yeah very Yay. good. There's a lot of history to draw on with the Krampus, uh, as the Krampus is a real life figure, but in fact. The Krampus's roots have nothing to do with Christmas, hmm. if you can believe it. Instead, uh, this is according to SmithsonianMagazine.com, they date back to pre-Germanic paganism in the region. His name originates with the German Krampen, which means claw, and the tradition has it that he is the son of the Norse god of the underworld, Hell. During the 12th century, the Catholic Church attempted to banish Krampus celebrations because of his resemblance to the devil. So, the Krampus himself historically comes around the night of December 5th, tagging along with St. Nicholas. He visits all of the houses at night with his saintly pal, while St. Nick is there to put the candy in the shoes of the good children and burk twigs in the shoes of the bad. Krampus. His particular specialty is punishing naughty children. Legend has it that throughout the Christmas season, misbehaved children are beaten with burke branches or can disappear, stuffed into Krampus's sack and hauled off to his lair to be tortured or eaten. It's pretty dark. Delightfully dark. Delightfully dark. Uh, but can you imagine growing up and just knowing that, like, you extra have to be good. Like, you know, I mean, it's not just like, oh, well, I might get some coal. Or it's like, oh, I might be beaten with beaten a with a stick. with a stick. Yeah. Or, if I'm really bad, stuffed in a sack and hauled to Krampus's lair, where I will then be either tortured yeah. or eaten. I just feel as though I would have had a lot of anxiety. <laughs> um, no wonder all of their lifespans were so short, because they spent their entire childhood being terrified. Mm-hmm. So, uh, in that, uh, the same interview with Dean of Geek that I referenced earlier with uh, Dotri, they asked him if he drew on any specific tradition for Krampus. Uh, and he says that all cultures kind of, like, have this creepy hot Christmas holiday figure, whether it's Krampus, Black Pete, or Belsa Nickel. Uh, they all have these creepy holiday figures. And so he didn't just put it to any one specific version of this uh holiday demon so it allowed him to just like take bits and pieces of different lores and put them together like the krampus himself doesn't have any helpers mm. it's just krampus but some of the other cultures have little helpers and so he was like that's interesting i want those so while they didn't technically come directly from the krampus lore they came from other things that he drew on and so it allowed him to create this melding pot of cultural creepy holiday badness which if we go back to the idea of the monster's body as, as a cultural product what better representation of an american monster than a melted pot version indeed indeed <laughs> it fits so perfectly it does so uh, krampus was released on december 4th 2015 and it grossed 60 million dollars worldwide against a 15 million dollar budget it was received eh. By critics and audiences alike, uh, Rotten Tomatoes scores a 67 from uh, critics and a 51 from audiences. Uh, the Metacritic is a 45 from critics. It's not fantastic. And a 7.5 from audiences. Hmm. And the cinema score is a B-. Anthony and I were 
discussing, like, before we started recording, we were like, just to make sure we're on the same page, we both did like it, right? And we were like, yes, we did. And I think that it's important that we kind of acknowledge that we're not saying that, like, if you can only watch one horror film, that this should be the horror film that you watch. Um, nor are we necessarily saying that this is one no, that's going to yield... It should be the Thanksgiving horror Yeah, film. exactly. Of course it should. Obviously. Um, obviously. And podcasts done. Um, <laughs> but, like... This is a solid horror film. This is a kind of a delightful romp. This does some some good things, as we've talked about, with um, you know the creature makeup. Mm-hmm. It's got some good horror mixed with comedy. And it does nice things with pacing. It's just kind of a fun film. It can definitely break up the monotony of just like happy, happy Christmas films that you enjoy and you just suffer through. Place it yes. in between. Uh, Perhaps you're watching of the Grinch yeah, or something Yeah, the Grinch and Christmas Vacation, a Christmas Story. Like, I mean, it works so nicely, right? Yeah. I also think it breaks up the monotony of watching horror films that also make you sort of suffer, right? Because horror, so much of it is, is makes you be like, wow, so humanity is disgusting and I hate everyone. And it's just nice sometimes to be reminded that it can not make you feel like you were the scum of the earth. Um, or, like, you will never get those images out of your brain. Like, this is just kind of a nice um, palate cleanser for both Christmas movies and horror movies. I don't know if the film necessarily is a total palate cleanser really? from from that. I think that this film does kind of operate from a disaffirmative angle in the sense that it does treat humans as kind of the problem. I'm From the beginning of the film, it starts with, like, you, you see, you hear this creepy stereotypical horror music that is playing as the uni- the like the cold universal logo comes out and it's horror but then it suddenly switches to like very cheery christmas music and then you get to watch evil human corporatism at work yeah so i actually think that that opening is fantastic i i don't know what it is I, i'm just kind of a a sucker for um films that take a song that I have different emotions about and then put it to usually violent things. Um, and then they're like, remember how this is not okay. Like the purge does this as well. Um, mm-hmm. and they're opening. And, and I think that this film does an excellent job. And so I agree with you that it is clearly saying that there's something kind of broken about our current Christmas season, especially as it's one that, you know, is filled with consumerism because I like the fact that the, the pageant, right? Like the, the tele- the nativity scene is mm-hmm. happening in the super tiny corner, right? Like yeah. off the main beaten path. And even that's broken, right? Because they're fighting. Um, so I agree with you. I, I'm just not sure it carries through uh, in its entirety. But we can talk about we that. We can definitely talk about that. I think it's worthwhile, though, especially because we constantly talk about affirmative and disaffirmative horror. To just sort of take us back to, like, one of the foundational ways that we can be thinking about disaffirmative horror. So this is, again, coming from Linda Holland Toll in her book, As American as Mom, Baseball, and Apple Pie. And we've used her before to set up this framework of disaffirmative. I just think it's worth, like, reminding us as well as, as hopefully you all listening, like, what exactly we mean. And so she says, disaffirmative horror fiction, far from working to reassure us that the monsters are not us, forces a dis-ease, full confrontation with the monstrous, with ourselves, from which we cannot walk away. And so you're saying that you see this film from beginning onward, really setting up that idea that maybe we are the bigger issue than Krampus. Yes, and I th- and I think that this film, the, what allows it to ultimately be disaffirmative is that for so much of it, and this is going to sound paradoxical, 
so much of it it does have very affirmative elements where it's it gives you the illusion like oh maybe it is just krampus's fault go away these humans and this lovely family could just go back to it but none of the that doesn't work out in the end the the stereotypical uh, patriarchal father figure doesn't is not able to be the shepherd to protect his flock the, the glorification of guns and like protecting yourself and being all that doesn't ultimately work out this family is broken up and when this kid comes back at in the end and he's like i just want christmas to go back to the way it was and evokes those very like nostalgic elements uh Krampus says, all right, into the pit you go, and then traps them forever. Yeah, so I want to argue that it is more affirmative than than I think you think it is, but I'm also, but I'm going to do so by first agreeing with you, because one of the things, yeah, because to carry that through, from the beginning, um, you know, we're sort of taught to see the the family that's coming to visit as being... um, lesser right or other or other because they are poorer and they constantly are making references to like how nice things are and it's like but shouldn't you just be appreciative as as how you're taught to feel about them um you know there's that whole like possibility that the dad wants the two older girls to be uh you know boys and so they feel so there's like this weird like you know gender dynamic and there's the the youngest son who's like on his way to Diabetes, mm-hmm. which, by the way, I have an idea for the title of a horror comedy called Diabetes. Um, I don't have any more than that, but I just thought I'd throw that out. Um, it's always best to start with a pun when yeah, it comes to I believe horror. every every horror should have puns. So, <laughs> but we realize very quickly into the film that the, quote, perfect family is broken as well. And some of it is is the obvious refrain of like the husband and wife are not quite happy, but also the daughter is clearly dating a druggie. Mm-hmm. Um, even if it's just, you know, pot, he's still like, he has a holiday bong. Like how much weed do you have to smoke to actually have a holiday themed bong? I would imagine the answer is a decent chunk. So, and she, we assume she's probably having premarital sex. Um, and even like, they don't treat Oma very nicely throughout. They kind of like use her. There's that mm-hmm. line where he's like, "You don't need to make cookies anymore. We bought some store bought ones, right?" So we see that this family is also broken. And you just broken. see her be broken I inside. I know. I the second time watching this film through, I kept thinking that like she was kind of evil. Like that we were gonna find out that she had brought Krampus because she seemed so dissatisfied the entire film. Um, but yeah, you're right that it does set up this idea that even the the quote good model is broken. Mm-hmm. I just think that it doesn't carry through these threads as effectively as it could. So the opening is fantastic, but I don't feel like the issue of consumerism, although it's mentioned in various moments, I don't feel like it's carried through as, as thoroughly as it could be. Um, or the idea of like the patriarchal family unit at the end of the day, the dads both do sacrifice themselves for their, for their families. And so they're not successful in doing it, but we are sort of taught like, but isn't this a nice model? Wouldn't it be nice if it worked? But isn't it nice that, that there's still this, like, system in place? I don't know. I just felt like there were times that it was just a little bit... It, it didn't go as far as it needed to, to truly be disaffirmative. I don't know. I think that the the opening of the film is what forces you to make those connections and what allows it to be disaffirmative. Well, sure, it doesn't do as good of a job of carrying through that some of those strands from the opening in terms of just, like, the corporatism, consumerism, humans, bad... They've 
done terrible things with this Christmas holiday, I, I think that that... Oh, I mean, it's kind of a cold opening of sorts mm -hmm. in that it doesn't have any direct... Right. Uh, impact on the rest of the film and the plot. Uh, but I think it for it's what forces you to be viewing this in an, and all of humanity in a negative light. Yeah, that makes sense. It really does. And I, I'm almost there. I'm, I'm like 75% willing to say that this film is disaffirmative. I think what may be holding me back beyond just the, like, I don't know if it always carries through, is that Max does not intentionally call forth Krampus, not even unintentionally intentionally, right? It's not like it's like there's this bell and it says Krampus and he's like, what's this? And he shakes it. Like, mm. all he does is he rips up his Christmas note. And, like, the um, the grandmother also, you know, all she wanted was, well, she was a little darker. She wanted her, everyone to disappear. But, like, yeah, let me, that's a bad example. No, that, one's, uh, that one doesn't yeah. work. No, no, no. Uh, she, she, <laughs> no, she definitely, she definitely asked for it. But I just felt like it, with this particular family, they're bad, but they're no worse than any other family. And okay, I think I know, that's the point. I, know, okay. I think that might be the point. I think that's how we know it's disaffirmative. Cause, and I think the fact that people can point to it and be like, oh, well, maybe Krampus might be coming for my family this year. Cause maybe we get into fights yeah, over Christmas that's dinner. That's Maybe we do spend too much money maybe and we've maybe we've Christmas. lost the spirit of Christmas. Krampus is coming for us because we as humanity have a, a pretty warped sense of what Christmas is now and like have lost the pure Christmas. You know, I, I think I'm maybe now I'm 80%. Hey, oh, yeah, I, I still don't think it's quite. That's a solid a, B minus. Yeah, that is. I mean, you know, before it was a C. It was a C. So, I mean, we've raised a significant amount. I just, I think it could have been a little bit better. Oh, uh, and I, I agree. I think it could have. And I think it needed to be, to be fully disaffirmative. I, I, I think that's probably true. Uh, I think that some of the elements in the background of the film serve to, like, further this, like, darker disaffirmative thing like just like little things like when you see classic christmas items but they're warped now like this santa candle with uh oh the, that was the fantastic wax dripping down the side the red wax the so red wax like so it looks like yet. santa's bleeding or like when and also like how creepy is it that like the way that we celebrate this figure is by setting him on fire, like, and destroying him. Like, it's it's a very funny, mm -hmm. and we do that all the time, really. So there's some interesting commentary. And there's just other little examples throughout that are just, like, taking these things and flipping them on their head and be, and showing, like, why do we do that? Why is this? What are we doing, humanity? Let's jump to the end of the film, which we both were rather delighted by the, mm -hmm. like, you know little twist to it or like the little like but wait there's more um because i think if it had just ended with like max waking up and it was all a dream first off that would have been the worst it would have been a terrible ever. ending i'm never in your film or anything by and then they woke up unless you're gonna say and then they woke up and realized they were in even a darker hell mm -hmm. like that's the only way you can do that but there's there's something for me about the fact that like we see that christmas a perfect version of christmas does have presence being opened and it does have all the quote best trappings of the holiday season so, and even though we realize that that they are trapped in hell i think i because i didn't see what it was about that that was hellish but see i think that that's the that is what makes it disaffirmative because all of these stereotypical things that we associate with like the perfect good christmas are there in hell and 
why are they there in hell with them in this trapped snow globe that they've found themselves in for all eternity if not to punish them because the some of the final things we hear about Krampus is like that he doesn't come to give he comes to punish it's true so he punishes this family with what the classic elements of Christmas are 83%. Yes! Yeah. I'm moving no on No higher. No higher. But I will give it a solid B in terms of effort. It's not quite there. But I think you're oh, right. I, I agree. That I agree. It's not quite there. It doesn't quite stick the landing. But one of the things I like, though, about the fact that there are certainly disaffirmative elements um, is that we've talked before about how, like, yes, we get it. Thank you for showing us that, like, premarital sex is such a horrible thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sometimes it just, like, when a film is super affirmative, it's like gross about it cough cough halloween yeah and and even my love of halloween can't ignore can't ignore that but i feel like because this film is disaffirmative krampus is disaffirmative for so much of it but still has these affirmative elements it can do so in a way that feels a little less like icky about it Mm -hmm. um because it's taking it on a slightly higher level than just the obvious like well if you do this you're gonna die you're gonna Um, die because even like the kid who's you know the the cousin who's definitely eating way more food than he should he's not a bad person no you know so there's never like a, of course you deserve to die like people apologize um you know people make up people and so nobody is 100 percent bad and so it's like of course you were punished it's like everyone's just bad enough yeah and, and that's a really kind of interesting way to, to explore things mm-hmm. one of the questions that i find really interesting about uh monster theory is is this question of classification so i don't think anyone is going to disagree um having seen this version of krampus that he's just misunderstood or that he's not a villainous character in this particular story like he's definitely out to punish the family we have a voiceover narrative that tells us Mm -hmm. such so i don't think anyone's going to disagree with that um but i i wonder if people could argue whether or not he's truly a monster or you said you thought he was more of a god he seems more godlike to me he comes in he's like he's here because bad things have happened and so he's come to punish it doesn't feel like very like like motivated or directed like if there's it's not a lot of spite behind it it's just hey you guys messed up you're one of your own called me here due to how bad this entire family been being so now i gotta do this thing yeah he definitely it's not making this personal right this is just like this is his duty and his obligation and even in like some of our slasher films where it's not personal you just happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time um it it you never feel like oh but you're justified in what you're doing but like krampus has been set up to do this everyone knows this this is this is his purpose this is he's it, it reflects like some of those uh, the mythical things about this character. It's the Krampus is the yin to Saint Nicholas's yang. I agree, and I think that it's very fascinating that almost all Western European cultures have some sort of version of this. Like, but you can't just get good things. Mm-hmm. Right, there has to be this dark side. So, like, I think there's a really interesting sort of dynamic there. But I find myself wondering whether or not gods. And I I mean gods more in the pagan sort of definition of them aren't just monsters. If if there really is a distinction between them, mm. because I feel like if I go through those those seven theses of like um, what Cohen said, here's what I think 
makes for a monster, to me, they're exactly what makes for a god. It's just that gods tend to have perhaps more power or more ability to influence things, but they are also a representation of cultural uh, identities. They are also a harbinger of category crisis. Think about the number of gods that are, you know, um, either half animal or half human, or that are like half warrior and half poet. Um, you know, there's just a lot of those. The only thing that's different is Cohen says that monsters are our children and we are the children of the gods, right? So that would be the distinction, mm -hmm. which would mean then that in this case, we're the monsters. So I don't know, perhaps it doesn't work, but for me, I just feel like gods are monsters nine times out of 10. And Krampus in this case is a god-like monster or a monster-like god. I'm not sure it matters which way we see him because the end result is the same. He's gonna punish us and he's gonna remind us that that we might not be as fantastic as we think we are. So if it's, if we admit, if, I, if I'm willing to admit that maybe god and monster are closer to the same, then that would mean you would, by what you just said, admit that because gods come there to remind us that we may not be as good as we are, that it's pretty solidly disaffirmative. Yeah, so you know sometimes when you say something and even as you're saying that you're like, I wish these words weren't exiting my mouth because I had not fully thought out the ramifications of the <laughs> thought. As the words were leaving my mouth and as I saw this like gleam, you have this like hunter's gleam, you were like, wait for it. She can't stop now. <laughs> and, and I couldn't like, and I wanted to, I really just wanted to stop and then like edit it out and pretend we never had this conversation. But maybe you're right. And so maybe, <sighs> I'm still, I still want to say it a solid B, but I'm willing to say that this film is definitely disaffirmative, even if some of its disaffirmativeness is almost accidental or like perhaps was, it goes beyond what was crafted mm -hmm. in the text and goes into our analysis, right? And so it's not, so maybe the text is not as disaffirmative as my reading of the text has to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think that does. I think that definitely does make sense. I always love these podcast episodes where one of us changes our mind. I know. And I'm glad that it's not just the same one of us <laughs> every time because that would be a sign of some weak thoughts. <laughs> but yeah, I think, you know, it's, and that's why I like this, right? It's because... I feel like the only way to really understand how you feel about something is to engage in discourse, mm -hmm. is to have someone be like, but uh-uh, and then you're like, yeah, huh? and then you have to justify yourself. I haven't always had someone to talk about horror with because I, like, I imagine many of the viewers out there uh, don't always have people who quite like horror as much as you. Yeah, so. definitely, definitely not. Um, and it like from childhood onward. So I know some people were really lucky that like their parents would watch horror with them. My dad would, but my mom would always be like sad. <laughs> so it was like, okay, well we just won't. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's taken a long time to find people that are willing to have these conversations, mm -hmm. especially about films like Krampus, right? Which exactly. Is like, yeah. It's like, <laughs> should you have just spent 50 minutes talking about Krampus? And the answer is yes. Yeah, I would um, say so. But I don't think most people are going to take you up on that offer if you were like, hey, guess what we're doing for this next hour? I've uh, I've sent you a Google Calendar invite. We're going to talk about Krampus for 50 minutes. I just feel like that would be a way to like end most friendships. I'm like, I just feel like I would start avoiding you if I didn't also send you or want to send you Google, Google Calendar. Like, yeah, where I'm like, hey, but we could also discuss Thanksgiving, you know? So. Exactly, exactly. Well, I feel like this was like 
a present to ourselves mm-hmm. where we got to have a lovely conversation about a film that deserves to have conversations about it, even if it's maybe not going to be a film that you're going to put on your top ten um, horror you, films You don't of all have kind. to. You just need to in, perhaps include it this year uh, in your holiday watching. Exactly. That's all that we ask yeah, of you. Really throw it, if, if you've got a family, throw it on like right after like Elf or something. Yeah, but really think- just like Give your kids a, a warm wake up. Yeah, what a great way to celebrate Christmas by ha- starting with Elf and ending with Krampus. Mm-hmm. That just sounds like for a delightful pairing. Thank you so much for listening. We really appreciate it. And we are excited about our next episode. Yes, our next episode, our next gift to you. Oh, gosh. No. Uh, is going to be 2019's Midsommar. And, of course, we're not gifting you the film so much as our discussion about the film. Right. You do need to have seen it or have just go buy it. I mean, we we are not going to give that to you. No. No. Just the episode. Just the episode. And we're going to have a lively debate because this is a film, uh, Midsommar, that deserves a very lively debate. Mm -hmm. So thank you and happy holidays, and we look forward to the next episode.